Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Adapia Dorico and Daniel Coca. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Real Wealth, Real Health. Today, we're speaking to Alex Libin from Mercer Street Partners, which is one of Alpha Investing's sponsor partners. This means is that at Alpha Investing, we syndicate into Mercer Street Partners real estate projects. Alex is the managing partner of Mercer Street, and he's responsible for the firm's day-to-day operations and is also a member of the investment committee. Alex also leads Mercer Street's Delaware Statutory Trust platform. Prior to founding Mercer Street, Alex was the assistant general counsel of United Realty Trust, Inc., a public non-traded REIT based in New York City. Alex is a good combination of risk-averse and yield-seeking, and he's thoughtful when it comes to investment strategy and focus. Alex agreed to join us for this podcast to discuss what he and his team are seeing on the ground in the real estate investment landscape, how they're managing their properties, and what opportunities exist today and in the future for good risk-adjusted real estate investments. There's a lot to learn about real estate in today's episode as it comes to us in the midst of this economic crisis and pandemic that's rattling the world. But as you'll hear, it isn't rattling patient professional investors. We asked you to come on quickly because we're We're trying to do these weekly episodes now for our audience in terms of giving them some boots on the ground information and knowledge from our sponsors in terms of what you're seeing, what's going on with the business. Obviously, this relates specifically to real estate. So for those listening, um, this is really going to be very, very focused on timely timely topics, uh, what's going on in the markets, um, what Alex is seeing and what you can expect. And of course, going into this, knowing that, you know, maybe a week from now or two weeks from now, things will have changed because things are changing so quickly already. It's like almost on an hourly basis, something will change. Um, Sometimes it's temperamental, sometimes it's fundamental. So Let's uh, start maybe, Alex, with tell us a little bit about yourself. You're an entrepreneur, and we love talking to entrepreneurs, how and why you started Mercer Street Partners. Sure. Um, So Mercer Street was started by myself and my partner, Joe Levine, um, in late 2016. We were the primary asset management acquisitions guys at a public non-traded REIT in New York City. Um, And I suppose we were tired of making other folks money. Um, We wanted to do it ourselves. And there were a bunch of circumstances that just made it the right time to leave and go out uh, on our own. Um, 
we have different backgrounds. Joe is a hospitality guy, went to the hotel school at Cornell, uh, took some time off, was a ski bum for a while out West. In another life, I uh, was in the hospitality business. I owned a restaurant that was not so successful and a nightclub that was more successful. I was a uh, practicing lawyer for a while. That was an okay lawyer. And we started Mercer Street really with the idea of just buying good real estate, being a good partner, uh, being a good landlord, being a good borrower, trying to do things the right way um, and kind of dispelling that notion that in order to succeed in, in New York real estate or in real estate in general, you got to be kind of a, a tougher, more aggressive guy. We, we thought we could do it. We thought we could do it the right way. And so far, you know, three years plus later, I'm proud of what we've built. I think that there's a lot of room for growth in our company, even with what's going on in the markets right now. No one, certainly two months ago, five months ago, no one expected that we, we would be here. Uh, but here we are, and it's, it's on us as sponsors, I think, to find opportunity wherever it exists. And that's what we're working hard every day to make happen. So first off, Alex, congrats on accomplishing every lawyer's dream, you know, stopping the practice of law. Um, you know, that, that aside, you know, one thing I think a lot of our investors, particularly as they are you know, getting into this world of, I want real estate exposure, they're, they're often you know, looking at REITs as a way to gain that type of exposure. And I think it'd be interesting to hear from you, you know, given your experience in that world and, and now your experience as a sponsor, the pros and cons, how you look at each, and maybe just a little bit about you know, how REITs make investment decisions and then how you as a sponsor do as well. And so if you wouldn't mind just doing a little compare contrast, uh, I think it'd be really helpful for, for folks who are, are trying to better understand those differences. Sure. So I think that there are, there are good parts of REITs and there are good parts of direct investing. So, so let's start with those. You know, with REITs, especially traded REITs, public traded REITs, um, you have a lot of liquidity. You have the opportunity to invest in deals that the average Joe wouldn't have the opportunity to invest in, um, institutional management and and just kind of best in class operation or at least the potential for that given the scale with direct private investing you get a chance to really know who the managers are um you know maybe you get better access to off market or um or lightly marketed opportunities which may give you a better opportunity than you'd be able to get like every other investor investing in the public markets um, but I also think with direct investing, you know, there's a, there's a level of, if you're doing it right, there's a level of communication and transparency you can get from your, invest, from your investment managers, uh, guys like Mercer, that I think is, is comforting. You know, when, when um, all this started to happen uh, with coronavirus in the past two weeks, I feel like I've been on the phone nonstop talking to investors explaining to them, here's what we're doing. Here's where we see things going. Here's why we're taking certain actions. And just here's how we're being proactive, regardless of what happens um, 
next, because as we mentioned in the outset, things are changing by the minute, we're trying to do everything we can to be communicative and to be proactive in taking actions that we think is going to best position the, the portfolio. You know, the negatives for each, you have less liquidity in, in direct investing. You know, maybe the deals you're doing aren't as large. You know, you don't have the same regulatory uh, oversight that you might have uh, in the public markets with the SEC or, or FINRA. Um, for the REITs, you know, it's a, it's a lot of fees. And you also have dislocations between uh, your, your REITs portfolio and the, the share price. And what I mean by that is, you know, you own SL Green, right? If there's a, a typhoon in East Asia, that could impact uh, the overall uh the overall S&P, right? The overall market, which may affect your, your SL Green stock, even though, you know, SL Green doesn't have any properties in Japan, or at least I don't think it does. But that's what I mean in terms of a, of a dislocation. So, you know, I think REITs are a great investment opportunity for a lot of folks. I'm not here to discourage it, but I think there's some interesting opportunities with direct investing as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we feel, you know, very similarly and, and, you know, as it relates to Mercer Street specifically, you know, I know you have, uh, you know, different asset classes, geographies, preferences in terms of how you guys invest. We'd love to hear a little bit more uh, about, you know, why you focus on, on certain types of assets, the different geographies and markets where you like to invest just a larger kind of investment thesis that, you know, folks are out there looking to make real estate investments themselves. I can maybe get a little bit of insight and advice from someone like yourself. Sure. So what we have focused on historically as a firm is delivering yield to our investors. And we have found a particular um, opportunity in kind of class B workforce housing in these strong secondary markets. Richmond is one place we have a a big concentration, Richmond, Virginia. And one of the reasons we like it is because it offers offers the opportunity to capture upside and some downside protection. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Richmond is one of many secondary cities across the country that is seeing an influx of millennial growth. Uh, between 2010 and 2015, I believe Richmond had the second highest millennial population growth in the country. It has extremely overbuilt transportation infrastructure. So people who might be moving from D.C. or New York who are tired of all the traffic don't have those same traffic headaches. Uh, in Richmond, cost of living is generally low. Um, so you have all of this population growth and all of this economic growth, which is really an opportunity for asset values to appreciate. And we are we are long-term holders in the market, I believe, because of that. Uh, and you see rent growth. and You see all the good indicators that you want to see. From a downside protection, one of the things we like about Richmond is it's a state capital, and you have uh, an industry concentration focused around government, medical, and education. Now, take what we're going through right now. You know, government 
obviously is going to have a place in this next phase. Same thing with healthcare, education, you know, depending on when schools open back up, that is uh, going to be a challenge, but we don't expect these colleges to go anywhere. And there's a lot of college students in the Richmond area. Now, Richmond is, is kind of a, a case study of what we're looking for, but other markets that we have a keen interest in, you know, Columbus, the Phoenix MSA, Denver, Colorado Springs, Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, I'm sure I'm forgetting others, but places that have stable economic drivers are, are not boom and bust cities. You know, maybe they're not New York or Silicon Valley uh, or Charlotte, where you have, you know, large concentrations of very affluent people that are largely tied to one sector, either finance or technology. Um, we view these as kind of steady, um, strong secondary submarkets where you can still capture yield, but also capture that economic diversification, which shields you in times like this or may shield you in times like this. Well, it's definitely um, times like this is such an interesting thing to say right now because um, it's so unprecedented what's happening. And I, re I remember in 2008, I was at a hedge fund when that all went down. And there are similarities, but the scope and the breadth of what is going on right now is also very different. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but in 2008, this was the, the downturn was driven by housing, uh, by real estate. This time around, it's not being driven by housing and real estate. It's going to affect real estate. And there is an expectation, um, I've been reading a lot, that there is this expectation that it's going to affect real estate short, medium, and long-term. Um, from your experience and what, what you're seeing with your properties and your markets, because obviously it sounds like you're, we're very well diversified, what are you seeing in terms of a short, medium, and potentially long-term impact that's being driven by um, this very unprecedented situation? So let's take the immediate term first. I think unlike in 2008, which was a top-down disruption, this will be a bottom-up disruption, meaning the first issue that we're going to see as multifamily owners is going to be April 1st, when we find out whether or not rent checks are going to start becoming late, really April 6th, when the grace period ends. We expect delinquency to be exceptionally high this month, and depending on what happens with the medical, political, economic landscapes in, in months to follow. That, that will be the most immediate impact. What, is, what does revenue look like? What do collections look like? The, immediate, the intermediate effect, the intermediate disruption, I believe, is one, how long does that, that collection dislocation last? And then what happens with your, with your loans, uh, with your debt obligations? Are you able to uh, arrange workouts with your lender? Are you able to, do you have enough cash to continue operations in this intervening workout period? You know, Freddie Mac has already released guidance. I believe Fannie has as well, uh, that they're going to provide forbearance if you 
um, suspend evictions for 90 days. So that's kind of the intermediate step. The long-term impact, I think, is going to be largely driven on what happens to the overall economy. And, and I think that's going to be, you know, kind of what does, what is the impact on asset pricing? The long-term impact is going to be, you know, what's, what's the impact on, on asset pricing? We are looking at deals now where, you know, it's in a good market that we like. It's a good multifamily property. It's, you know, the ask is a six cap. Well, you know, four weeks ago for this asset, if you told me I could get it for a six cap, I think that's great. Now I don't know what I should pay for that. I, I don't know what the, what the market is, is going to bear. I think we'll have a lot more clarity when this uh, stimulus package comes out as we're recording right now that, that hasn't come out yet. And you know, it's, hard to un, it's hard to overstate rather how important that is in all of this. The federal government injecting $2 trillion into the economy will have, I believe, an enormous stabilizing impact um, and will offer clarity to a lot of the issues we're talking about, right? Like, will, will there be mandated rent holidays? Will there be mandated interest holidays? What sort of direct payments are going to be made to lower income people, all of whom are our tenants, what sort of resumption is there going to be in economic activity, which is going to get the jobs market, you know, back kicking? One of the things that we talk about all the time, and it seems like all anyone can talk about, and it's ironic because I'm talking about this as I'm trying to teach my young daughter letters, will the recovery be V-shape? Will it be U-shape? Will it be L-shape? And I I think that the stimulus is going to have a large impact on that. And I think our ability to, as a country, get control of the outbreaks, you know, again, we can't minimize how important that is. So as it relates to your properties, how is the strategy changed, you know, if it has at all in the short term? Meaning, are you focused on... Uh, managing to maximize occupancy? Are you still looking to increase rents? Is it a, a wait and see? You know, what are your thoughts about you know, how you guys kind of protect uh, you know, the, the investment that we've all made into your deals in this present moment? Sure. So I think there's, there's a few things that we've done immediately with, with all of our assets, multifamily or, or non. All non-essential uh, CapEx projects have been suspended. At one asset, we were you know, going to be constructing a pool and we put that project on hold. The desire to preserve cash as a war chest for what may come is very important to us. And we are fortunate that we are generally a more conservative firm when it comes to cash reserves. So we, we feel like we are well protected for at least the immediate and medium term. Uh, the second thing we do um, and we have done is speak to all of our lenders. Before any legislation was being contemplated, we got workout request letters into the hands of all our lenders and all our servicers to let them know that we expect there to be a certain disruption and we're going to, we requested some relief from them. Yeah, but I was actually going to ask, maybe it's a good time to ask is, 
you know, you were saying how critical is the relationship with a lender and how critical is lending right, right now in this business? I mean, we believe that relationships, whether they're with your lender or with, with your tenant or, or with your property managers or investors, it's everything. Trust gets built up over time. And the trust reserve that you build up, you build up not just because it's the right thing to do, but because in instances like this, you need to draw from it. My lender needs to know that if they're going to give me some flex, that I'm going to do the right thing with the money that they're effectively giving me by virtue of delaying payments of some sort. Or if they're saying, you know, you don't have to make CapEx reserves. The CapEx reserve contributions for a certain amount of time, they need to know that I'm not going to take that money and, you know, run to Tahiti, that I'm going to continue to preserve the asset during this intervening period. Same, same thing with investors, right? In, in, in all of this turmoil, no one's called me and said, you know, can we get our money back? Um, no one's called me angry in any way. It's, it's, what are you guys doing? Thanks for being communicative. You know, let us know if we can be supportive. You, you build up trust over time four times like this. Yeah, we feel the same way about our relationships and um, our investors and also relationships with our sponsors. Like, like you, you know, you were, you were talking about the having the CapEx reserves. Can you um, can we get just a little technical on that for those who may not know what that means? Like, what is a CapEx reserve? Why is it, why is it important? Sure. So as part of most loans, lenders require that borrowers contribute a certain amount of money each month into uh, a capital expenditure reserve. And that reserve can be drawn from by the borrower as reimbursement for certain capital improvements to the property. So I'll give you an example. We have a property, a uh, 103-unit multifamily property, where we have recently finished replacing all the floors. Uh, we put vinyl plank flooring in all the common area hallways. As we completed that project, paid the vendor, we submitted to the lender for reimbursement. The lender cuts us a check, and that money gets uh, used to replenish the operating account. And if you have a good relationship with your lender, um, you're often able to make that reimbursement process pretty seamless because ultimately it's in your interest and the lender's interest to preserve and improve the asset. Um, and if you continue to do that, you know, everyone's rowing in the same direction. So let's talk bigger picture. You know, we're likely in or headed into some type of economic downturn of unknown duration. And one thing I guess we could say with a high degree of certainty is that consolidation often follows these types of downturns. And so as you look at your business, you know, as a a private real estate investment sponsor, what is it that you expect to see? Is there a, a thinning of the herd maybe of groups that have been a bit too aggressive so late in the cycle, you know, maybe in the form of, you know, deals that require, um, you know, pro forma rent increases that are, are more substantial or, you know, overusing leverage. Uh, just be interested to see what you think will happen in this space as 
know, the medium long-term impact of all this really plays out? So I think, I think the answer to that question largely depends on how long uh, all of this turmoil lasts and what government assistance is available. And I don't say that as a, as a dodge. It's just we're talking about such a large disruption to the economy and at the same time such an enormous injection by potentially by the federal government in so many different ways. It's, it's hard to say right now who is going to be winners and losers. With that said, I think that folks who are not adequately capitalized are going to have a hard time uh, weathering the storm. I think that people who made over-aggressive underwriting assumptions, maybe not immediately, but in the intermediate term, are going to have a similar experience. I think folks that uh, don't value relationships are going to have a really hard time getting their lenders to give them relief. I think. I think that there's always an opportunity when there's a disruption. What I can say is that Mercer Street is not going anywhere, um, whether this lasts two months, 20 months, 200 months. Uh, we're fortunate to be a you know, well-capitalized shop that has a very long investment horizon. We have patient capital partners. We have a great team who I feel like has been working around the clock remotely for some time now. Good companies will find a way to survive. I will say one other, I will say one other interesting thing. New York was the first, second after, after Seattle, was one of the first places to really feel the full effect of this. And it, in some ways, that was a disadvantage, right? Because it was, it was very disruptive to our firm. But in some ways, it was an advantage in terms of our ability to manage our portfolio. Because we got a head start on planning for and working within this disruption. We were able to get out of our offices in New York, set up all of our uh, you know, remote infrastructure. Our disaster plan went into effect. We were able to proactively communicate to our property managers and say, this is not coming. You're, you're not feeling this just yet, but we promise it's coming. And here's what we want to do to get in front of this. Now, we were only a few days in front, but we, we tried to be as proactive as possible. And we are starting today to see some of those benefits as a result. On the other side of this, where do you think we'll see opportunities in real estate? Well, I, I think it's going to be some time from now, and, and it's not necessarily what, what Mercer um, has historically looked at, but, but I think there's going to be an opportunity in hotels and, and hospitality in general. It's just, you know, it's been, it's been beaten down so badly. You're talking about going from, you know, 90% occupancy to 5% occupancy in a matter of days across an industry, across the country. Like that is, that's staggering. And there are, there are plenty of 
hotels that um, and and plenty of hotel owners that are are going to be in severe distress. So I imagine there will be some opportunity there. You know, it's I think multifamily there will there will always be strong opportunities. I think there's going to be more emphasis in some of these these more stable markets that I mentioned. You know, as a as a an acquirer of real estate, I hope that I hope that you know, cap rates uh, increase a little bit. It it has been it has been exceptionally challenging um, in a in the pre-COVID world to find deals that make sense. You know, Daniel, you and I have spoken about this at length over the past six months. You know, finding deals that that made sense with realistic underwriting, uh, even with debt availability where it was, was really challenging. And to your point earlier, I think there are folks who in this immediate pre-COVID period made aggressive underwriting assumptions that uh, I think are, are going to be really challenging. I was telling our team on one of our daily uh, kickoff calls, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that we lost some of the bids that we were making in, in early Q1. Uh, I, I'm, I'm thankful we're in a position now where we can kind of look at this blank slate and see, you know, where the right opportunities to pounce are. So do you think in this environment where I think it's reasonable to assume we should be looking at a very low interest rate environment for their foreseeable future, whether that's, you know, a year or, or more, what's the impact on, on cap rates? I know you mentioned, you know, you're hoping cap rates increase, you know, as are we as you know, acquirers of, of real estate, but you know, the cost of borrowing uh, is now lower. I think there's some expectation that, you know, there may be investors who want to move more of their, investable capital into real estate and so potentially more equity capital in the space which in theory would also compress cap rates um, but that's me talking what about you what do you think this low interest rate environment means for deal flow over the next 6 12 18 months I, I, it, it certainly helps deal flow right uh, there's no way to see low interest rates harming uh, deal flow. The question is, is there going to be rent growth? Is there going to be uh, NOIs at the property level to justify pre-COVID pricing expectations? And I think the market will need some time to, to settle. I, I believe there will be opportunities. I think that depending on your asset class, you may see a large disruption in your ability to lend, and you may see uh, in other asset classes, you know, little disruption. Multifamily, I think Fannie and Freddie are, are still going to be there. They're still going to be, you know, aggressive in, in making loans. I think if you're trying to put acquisition financing on a hotel, it's going to be very, very challenging. If you're going to do it for retail, I think it's going to be very, very challenging in the, in the immediate term. Banks are still going to need to lend money. Um, there's going to be a lot of government incentives and pushes to to loan money. I think there's going to be, you know, even on a non real estate side, a ton of SBA lending on the back of this 
this government intervention, the, the lending community is going to be active. And as there is more liquidity in the market, whether it's on the lending side or even on the consumer side, right? Because ultimately that's what's, that's what's driving a lot of the demand for these commercial real estate projects. I, I think the more liquidity there is, the more opportunities there's going to be for, for increased deal flow. I'm actually really interested in uh, when we talked the other day about uh, your North Korea ties. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I do actually... Yeah, ties is the wrong way. Ties, ties is the wrong way. Uh, yeah, this, this call is being uh, tapped into by uh, Homeland Security right now. Uh, my apologies. Uh, but yeah, I, I want to hear the story. I, I have always been, I've always been excited by challenges. Challenges that other people may think foolish and unreasonable. And when I was in college, I read, I read a story online or in a magazine about the toughest place in the world to visit. Uh, and North Korea was one of the places. And at the time, there had been fewer than a thousand Americans who had ever been to North Korea after the Korean War. And I applied for three consecutive years to get a, a tourist visa. And uh, eventually I got one and I went on uh, what can charitably be described as a government tour, uh, a government propaganda tour really of North Korea in 2007. One of the, one of if not the most interesting experience in my life, I, I would say that aside from going to the moon, it's the furthest you can go from home. A totally, a totally bizarre experience. Um, you know, this was, this was before uh, it became very, very dangerous for Americans to go, you know, where you were almost guaranteed to be to be kidnapped. And it was a period of, I, I don't want to say some uh, reduction in tensions, but it, as the history of North Korean U.S. relations go, it was, I suppose, a relative bright spot. You know, we talk about in this, in this past week, um, and I'm sure we're going to keep talking about it for, uh, for many weeks to come about kind of the role of government in people's lives. And in North Korea, the government controls every aspect of people's lives. I mean, where you can live, what you can eat, what you can listen to, where you can travel to, where your kids go to school. It's interesting to kind of keep that in mind as, as one of the extremes in this interplay between the citizens and, and their representatives. We met in New York probably three weeks ago now, and you know this was yep. kind of right on the forward edge of you know this current situation. I, I remember you were still taking the subway at a time at the time. I thought you were crazy. Uh, never the, nevertheless, um, you know we we talked a bit about you know downside protection. We talked about new asset classes. You know you mentioned wanting to look at uh, affordable housing deals. You mentioned looking at uh, mobile home, manufactured home communities, you know, at a high level, what are you thinking with those asset classes? Do you think there'll be opportunities there on a going forward basis? I do. I, I think 
I'm probably not the only person who sees the opportunity there. So I think those those asset classes may be more in demand now than they might have been six weeks ago, though manufactured housing has been extraordinarily uh, in demand, very challenging to find deals that make sense there. But but I think that affordable housing, whether it's you know, LIHTC, low-income housing tax credit properties, or government payor uh, housing, whether it's transitional housing in some of the major cities, homeless, uh, domestic violence, et cetera, or Section 8, you know, government voucher type programs. Mm-hmm. I, I think those are, those are going to be attractive. It is at times a more challenging asset class to manage, and it is a management specialty within its own within its own right. But I, we as a firm, like the opportunities there for um, for acquisition opportunities and also just for stable yielding real estate assets. So, Alex, it really sounds like, to some degree, there's wait and see. There are opportunities. They're definitely not in the immediate term, um, but with all of your experience for all these years, you're confident that there will continue to be opportunities. So is it, would it be fair to say that in general, you're optimistic about where we're going to go with everything? And how does that tie into, I guess, maybe a little bit of your personal outlook on how you've built your business and, and also like how you think about life in general? Is it from an optimistic, opportunistic perspective? It certainly sounds like that to me. I'm generally an optimistic person, um, like many, many people in this industry and, and around the country. You know, my family came from somewhere else, less free and less prosperous than the U.S. You know, my grandfather was born in Germany. His family left Germany early in the 1930s, made their way to Italy, and then from Italy to Ethiopia, and then eventually to the U.S. Um, and when they left Germany, you know, all they had was money and a rolling pin. So um, this is America. Anything's possible. This is not just the richest country in the world. This is the richest country in the history of the world. And I think a lot of that is due toward, you know, the the creativity and the entrepreneurial spirit of this country. Uh, we will be back. I can't tell you how long it's going to be. I, I am not a seller. I, my portfolio looks the same today as it did six weeks ago. Uh, I am not selling any of my assets. I haven't laid off any of my staff. It is, I don't want to say business as usual because business is anything, but usual right now, but I'm not taking chips off the table. Uh, we are in for a rough uh, business ride and we're in for a rough health ride over the next six months, 12 months, 18 months. But somehow we're going to get through it. This country's been through wars. This country's been through great depressions. We'll find a way. This is, this is America. We'll, we'll make it work some way. Thank you for that. It's, it's a great way I think also to 
and our time together and just to say thank you for everything that you've shared with us for being so forthcoming uh informative um you know, getting into the into the nitty gritty and also taking this high level view. I'm very grateful for your time today. Grateful to have you as one of our partners at Alpha and for all the work that you're doing out there um, with your partners and your employees and your tenants. So just wanted to say thank you for just for you and for everything that you're doing. Thanks. Uh, thanks for that. That means a lot. We'll, uh, it's a lot easier when you have good partners. You guys are a good partner. Yeah, thanks a ton, Alex. We're uh, very appreciative that you carved out some time uh, to do this. I think for us, you know, we're trying to be overly communicative with, with our investors. We want to use this time to provide content and, and kind of insight into to what the people on our network are doing. And, and so this is really helpful. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>